Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, OTP24 was officially released. This is something we've been waiting for for a long time. We we're excited about it. One of the reasons it's so exciting is this has the big JIT release, which we've talked about before quite a bit. Another thing that we're kind of really excited about with OTP24 is Elixir 1.12 was kind of waiting on OTP24 to land first. This means by the time you hear this, there might even be an Elixir 1.12 that's already released. To help understand what some of the improvements are, just kind of looking over the blog post, I have a link to that in the show notes. There's a number of improvements that are very specific to the Erlang syntax and language, but there are a number of improvements that are just general to the Beam. And Lucas Larson of the OTP team wrote a great blog post that really highlights these improvements and explains what a lot of them mean, like with showing code and totally worth checking out. Yeah, so some examples are like better error messages. Uh, there was a improved receive, uh, the receive block optimizations. Another good one that that is well deserved to be called out is is documentation chunks for eDoc, right? Mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, X X Docs will also be able to leverage some of this, and we had talked to Voitech Mock about some Erlang documentation that might live in in Hex Docs one day, and this might be you know this might help enable some of that. So very exciting stuff, uh, closer workings together between Erlang and Elixir. Yeah, there were a number of improvements in there that I wasn't entirely clear how they might be leveraged by Elixir. Some of these are just like core OTP things. I'm just waiting to see if those are going to end up kind of showing up in gen servers or the docs or the API for anything. So some of that's just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah. With all that said, OTP24 is uh, an incredible release, especially with the JIT in there. But just like with any releases, there's going to be some pain. <laughs> so, so some of the pain is, are, has already come, up, come about. Uh, for example, the crypto app in, in OTP especially on Mac systems working with OpenSSL. You know, a lot of folks might have the older libraries installed still or something along those lines. And so just compiling OTP24 might have some more difficulties. I'm sure these will get improved upon and like, you know, patch revisions of OTP or in the build tools themselves like ASDF. But just heads up, there are some issues out there. We've got some links to some common fixes. So if you yourself are experiencing some of these issues, come check out the show notes and, and maybe some of these links will help you out. Another issue also about crypto is about the API. This is, this is less about compiling OTP. This is more about using crypto. In OTP 22, there was a new crypto uh, set of functions that were released or coined the new API. So that implies that there's now the old API. And OTP 22 is where this was introduced. OTP 23 happens. There was a deprecation of the old ones, but those functions still are there. They, they work. OTP 24, this one is where those old API functions are dropped. So uh, that means that some libraries might need to be updated to account for that, either checking for the old and new functions if they're, ex- if they're exported or not, and then use the appropriate ones, or maybe just you know have a breaking, a breaking change and a major, major bump to require it to be 24. I know, I know from a personal experience, Cypher and uh, SIG AWS, uh, those two libraries specifically, probably others, anything, again, that could use those old crypto APIs, they're probably going to have to be updated before you can you yourself update to OTP24 just so they can use the new APIs. The good news is, is that from from what I can tell, the new API in OTP24 for these crypto functions, it's easier. <laughs> so we're moving forward in a good way. So that's good. 
one last pain point here. This one is maybe not so much of a pain point, but another big feature in OSB24 is the WX widgets uh, integration. One of the new things that was introduced in OSB24 is a web view, right? So basically a built-in little browser. So you can just embed a little browser and maybe browse, you know, what, whatever you want in there. And this this is a good way to create like a, a, a native application. This is actually native application and it's drawn by the library and, and development tools called WX widgets. The new component in there is WebView. Well, since that is rendering, you know, a browser, basically, you might need more libraries installed on your computer to to take advantage of that. That doesn't prevent you from installing without those libraries. You just might install OTP24 without WebView enabled. That's okay, unless you want to use that. Then you might see more warning messages uh, when you're installing OTP24. And if you're cool with that, then, hey, ignore those messages. But if you want that, Double check the ASDF Erlang if you're using ASDF. Double check their wiki. There's uh, lots of issues uh, open there about this and tips on how to get those libraries for your particular system. That wraps it up for the problems that I've seen so far. And and I say problems, but really they're just keep those things in mind. Any upgrade is going to have this kind of issue. OGB 23, I'm sure, had similar issues. And we, we as a community end up figuring it out, getting the docs to be better, improving our build tools, all that stuff is, uh, is on the up. So we're, we're in, in good shape there, I think. But keep that in mind. Upgrades still have problems. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, we've been talking about Livebook being really helpful when you're playing with nerves and nerves devices. Previously, Frank Hunleth of the Nerves Project had to kind of patch his own little copy of Livebook to make it work well with nerves. Well, it's good news. Those changes have been upstreamed into Livebook, and it now supports an embedded mode. So additionally, there is a Nerves Livebook project that lets you try out Nerves projects on real hardware without needing to build anything. You'll be able to run code in Livebooks and work through Nerves tutorials from the comfort of your browser. If you're interested in playing with Nerves, maybe that's been on your list of like, man, I really want to get playing with that sometime. This looks like it could be a great opportunity to jump in and start playing, especially as they've been putting together these nerves-focused live books that help you learn as you go and kind of interactively play with it. So I think it's awesome. I could have really used this a couple of years ago when I was trying to make my sprinkler system using nerves. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagined Kate, Kate in, in, a, in an office with a window, you know, <laughs> he's just on his computer with a live book open and he just looks out the window. Yep, the, yep, the sprinklers are on or, or nope, they're not. <laughs> Or would you be walking around with a laptop? What, what's, what's the imagery here? <laughs> I, I'd be waiting for people to walk on the sidewalk and then I'd turn them on. <laughs> so next up, I just wanted to mention a issue that I saw come across. I know there's been a little bit of chatter about XUnit actually compiling the test. So Jose actually opened an issue talking about the potential for doing this. So I know it's really early. It's pure speculation at this point, but I think that that could really help for the speed of running tests, especially as your test suite gets larger, to have those tests be compiled. I'm excited to see what comes from this. Just wanted to kind of toss this in as something excited that could come in the future. I do think it's interesting. As I've worked on projects that get larger and larger, and the test suite is getting larger, just running the test suite, there would just be a large chunk of time spent while it's compiling the all the EXS files, which are not compiled and cached. And so just waiting for that before the test suite even starts running. So this would be very interesting just to see what other impacts that might have. So it's an interesting discussion open there on that issue. So you can check it out. Next, I just wanted to mention that NX has received a couple of nice updates. 
Two new features. One is numerical definitions in NX now support while loops. And this is important as it allows the whole training loop to run in the GPU without having that back and forth communication with the host and the Elixir code. So that's already been merged in. And another one is maps are now supported in numerical definitions. If you're working with models that have too many parameters, previously you'd be using tuples and is positional arguments. And if there's a lot of arguments having to pass, it became very cumbersome. So maps allow developers a lot more flexibility when working with these more complex models that take a lot of arguments. A while back, we mentioned the PR that was open for adding a HEEX engine to Phoenix Live View. So that PR was finally merged. It does require Elixir 112, but hopefully we see that coming out soon. And Dashbit has released a blog post kind of talking about this feature and where it might be headed in the future. So give that a read if you're interested. Yeah, and about the Elixir 1.12. So I, I saw that that was mentioned in the PR, but it wasn't very clear to me like where or why that functionality was required for 1.12. And I, it even mentioned uh, that a subset would work on older Elixirs. So I don't know, maybe we won't even notice anything, but uh, I'm sure it'll all sort itself out soon. And that's it for the news. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Maciej Kaszubowski. Maciej, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back here. So Maciej has been with us before. Uh, you were in episode nine back when we were talking about decomposing models. So that was a really good discussion. I'm glad to have you back for another talk. You wrote recently an article that was focused on background jobs and designing for modularity. Now, I know when we're dealing in the web space, background jobs is something that comes up a lot. So I think this is something people will find a lot of value in. And I'm looking forward to talking more about that. But before we jump into all that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? My name is Maciej. I live in Poland, in Poznan. And I have been working with Elixir for about five years right now. Before that, I was doing Ruby for two years, which is pretty standard for, for Elixir devs. Right now, I'm working for a company called Boulevard. It's a company based in Los Angeles, and we make software for the beauty salons, spas, and businesses like that. And I have joined them about two months ago, so it's still pretty pretty recent, but I really enjoy what I do. Before that, I was working for a company called Appunite, uh, which is based in Poland. And as part of working there, I was involved in a logistics product. That's one thing I think is really nice about uh, the situation we have right now, just with being able to do remote work. So that's awesome that you're able to work from an L for an LA company. So the time difference there, is that a big challenge Like for working with the remote teams that way? Yeah, so the time difference is nine hours. And I feel that something that we have to get used to and certainly with what's happening and what has been happening for the last year, uh, I feel that a lot of companies have to get used to working like that. So there are some differences and there are some problems, but I feel that you can get used to working like that and you can basically learn how to cope and how to deal with the time difference. But on the other hand, there are a lot of benefits to that. So like, being in a different time zone and having the opportunity to work in the morning peacefully by myself with no interruptions like it's really amazing and you don't really get that when you work in an office with other people that can just come to your desk and interrupt you 
It's so true. I wake up really early just to get that time, like where before my kids yeah. have woken up. Yep. Totally recognize that. Well, I'm excited to have you come back on because we're going to talk about how we can better kind of structure our code to work better for background jobs and, and solving these kinds of problems. In your blog post, first you talked about this idea, like even in the title, it's read models for background jobs. So maybe you can kind of explain first, when you say read model, what does that mean? I am pretty sure there, there are a lot of def- definitions for what read model is. For me, a read model is a model that is optimized for reading. Typically, if you use a relational database like Postgres, you model your data in a normalized way. So you try to avoid the duplication. You try to make sure that the data is not really in two places. While that's pretty efficient in like average case, it's not really perfect for every case you may have. Sometimes when you want to read a data that you need for a particular use case, it gets really tricky to do that with a normalized data. You have to use a lot of joins or complicated queries. And you can basically solve that by creating a separate model that is used just for reading the data. And then you can make sure that if you need to read the data, you can do that as simply as, as possible. When you talk about doing that, would you be saying that the model is still pulling together multiple normalized data tables and pulling that together into one uh, maybe struct representation of that data? Or are you actually talking about creating a table that denormalizes some of that data together? You basically have different ways of doing that because like read models, it's a pretty broad term. And one use case that's often mentioned is, is doing that with for example, event sourcing, when you use events for like writing data and you use read models for reading the data. But you also can use them like a separate table when you gather data from different tables into a single table to make reads easier or more efficient or simpler for you. Following that DDD domain-driven design approach, I, I kind of latched onto this term called aggregate. I think that describes what we're talking about as well, which is just saying I have database tables where my data is normalized and split out across multiple tables, but I have one representation in the program that might pull all of that together into a single struct so I can just kind of deal with it in that representation or that like maybe even a view. It's like aggregating data together and into a single model. So that's interesting. I like your, I like your approach though. So one question I have is whenever someone has done a deep dive like this, is just kind of what prompted this? You know, I'm sure you hit some kind of situation where you're like, huh, this could be better. What was happening that you said, let's go deeper on this? Let me give you an example from like when I used to work for that transportation company. One of the use cases we we had to handle was like once the driver finishes a job and delivers a package, there's a lot of documentation that has to be uploaded into the system. And the thing is that once every document is uploaded, it is like processed and a lot of stuff is happening in the background based on that document. So you have different problems to solve when implementing a feature like that. For one, you have to make sure that you do whatever you can not to lose any document. So a case when the driver uploads a document and then 
receives a 500 error and the document is lost, it's just not acceptable. So you have to make sure that you avoid that as much as possible. Then you have to deal with different ordering of uploading the document. So for example, you need four different documents to move on. So how you make sure that you only process them after the fourth one has been uploaded. So what we did to handle that, like we used a read model that stored for each, each driver. It stored like the four documents that had to be uploaded. And then for everyone that already was uploaded, we start the, the file content or the URL to the file. And then processing those documents was really simple because you just had to query the table with the documents, see if the documents are all there, and process the, the documents that are just like all completed. And by doing so, we eliminated the, the risk of making a mistake in the code that causes the document to be lost because when the driver uploads the document, the only thing that happens is like the document being saved, which is pretty safe and pretty, pretty fast to do. So we avoided that risk and we also made the logic of determining when to process the documents really simple. That example shows how you can use a separate read model. So a data model that is suited to the problem you're trying to solve rather than a general model for all the data, you can use the treat model to make your problem pretty simple. Yeah, I've had that same kind of situation working in the background check industry previously. You have like applicants uploading documents, you know, identification, payment stubs, uh, things like that. And yeah, you do not want the processing of that document to come back and cause a problem for them. It's like, that's not their problem. Right. Like they yeah. have done their part make that always succeed. So long as they're able to upload it successfully, that should be good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at that point, their job is done. And what's happen, what's happening next, next is not their concern. So that's why I like to like, I treat it as a background job, because it's not happening as an immediate result of user's action, but as something that is like happening later on. So when you mentioned that you were doing these read model representations of the data, I'm curious, are you using like an embedded schema as a struct that's not tied to a database or are you using some like just a, a map? When you're talking about the Elixir code, what does that actually look like? Actually, I think the simplest way of doing that is just creating a plain old database table and using Hector to, to populate and read that. I think that you can use embedded structs, you can use like whatever you want, basically. But I feel that if you don't have any particular need you want to solve, just go with what you are used to and what the team is used to. It's like the simplest way of making sure that it's easy and safe to use. I don't feel that adding a separate dependency or a separate database is really useful or helpful. So coming back to your article, you talked about these kind of two different approaches, a pull-based versus a push-based approach. So what are these and how do they change the, the nature of our solution or our system? Maybe a bit of context before we like dive into pull-based and push-based. What I try to do at my blog is to bridge the gap that I feel there is a gap between like general software design principles and then 
our real code base and problems we have to face day to day. And I feel that designing software is both a really hard job and a job that is really important and can have a real business significance. On the one hand, you have rules and principles that are generic and they can feel like they're pretty straightforward. So like you should have a class that has only one responsibility. Like there's no really much flexibility in that role. But then you have a real code base and when you try to apply that role, it's not, it is not that simple because what like re- one responsibility really is, it's really hard to define that. On the other hand, you have people who know that design is really contextual and what your solution looks like should depend on all of the things you care about. If you want the system to be as stable as possible, you design a solution uh, in a different way than if you just want to prototype something. All of those non-functional requirements are really important to design the system. So the answer to a lot of those questions, how to design something, is really it depends. But the real question in my opinion, is it depends on what. And what I'm trying to do in my blog is to find those different questions you can ask about the code base or try to find different mental models you can use to reason about different possible solutions and trying to like navigate the, the trade-offs you have to make when choosing a design. So coming back to pull-based and push-based, I... I see that distinction as one of those different mental models you might have when thinking about the code base. Imagine a a database table and, for example, if you are dealing with some kind of events in in your application, so if you're hosting a concert, let's say, you probably want to send notifications about those events to people attending them, right? One way of doing that is to have a gen server, which is pretty easy in Elixir, that at an interval pulls the data from the table. So it does a query like select uh, everything from events table where the, the starting day is like today and then send the events. In that solution, the worker pulls the data from the, the events table. And the events table is something that is like central to the application design. On the other end of the spectrum, you have like the push-based solution. So I would imagine imagine that you have some module that when you create a new event or when a new participant joins the event, you push the information about that thing happening to some other piece of your system that handles the notification. So after the participant joins an event, you tell the other piece of the system to send a notification to that user at a specific time. The module that creates the new participant pushes the data to some other piece of code to then do its job. I also like that example, or just kind of the acknowledgement that, you know, there are principles that we learn about and we read about, and, you know, there are whole books dedicated to, and then there's the actual implementation. Yeah. I can kind of think of it like, you know, a simple example, I've got a pattern here for making a t-shirt. And depending on the 
fabric that I'm using. I might have to adjust things. Maybe it's stretchy or not stretchy or, or whatever. But I'm, then I'm actually making an implementation, actually cutting it and sewing it together. And maybe I get the stitch wrong. I adapt and use a different kind of stitch. And then it's like, okay, well, we followed this principle and in this system, we built it and it ends up looking like this t-shirt. Maybe it's a little bit crooked. Maybe some of the stitching is coming out. I don't know. But then we come over to our next system and we say, hey, well, we, we can copy that version that we already made. So you're like, then you start making a copy off of the implementation, which is already not perfect to the ideal. And now yeah. we're even further from it. And that, that's kind of what I think ends up happening in our systems. We end up like, oh, I can reuse all of this that I've implemented over here. And then we kind of adapt it. And it's like, we're still even further away from like the pattern that we're actually trying to talk about. So it's just fun to kind of acknowledge that, yeah, the real world, it gets messy and we just kind of have to do our best. But being aware of what that pattern is, the principle behind it, we can always use that to make adjustments back towards a good design. I just like that uh, that you kind of have that big caveat to start with. Yeah, and what you just said, it's pretty natural. And I feel that a lot of people try to avoid that. And I, I am sure that I did as well. But then you realize that most of the software is created by a team of completely different people coming to the, the company at different points in time, uh, bringing different experiences and like experiencing the code base at different stages in life. They see some of the trade-offs that were made, but they don't know the context. So it's no surprise that the code base we work with can be chaotic, can be a bit weird, can be inconsistent. And I no longer find it to be an issue we should try to avoid, but I treat it just like something we have to deal with because this is how the world just works. And the sooner we accept that and the sooner we try to like embrace that way of thinking about what we work with, the the better we, we are at our job. Yes, it's true. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, let's come back to uh, this topic of, of pushing and pulling because uh, I liked where you were going. You gave this example of like, you know, the gen server can have like a, you know, self timer kind of thing and just, I'm going to pull things. And then how the other idea of the push is where we take when an event happens, a new event is created, or like a calendar event kind of thing that you're ex giving an example of, or a participant joins yeah. that event, then we're pushing data out to somewhere else. And I think that's where you spend most of your time and focus is on this push and some of the benefits that that gives us in terms right. of being able to design our system. So maybe you can continue and say, you know, like, what benefits do we get from that? In my article, I spent most time discussing that approach, but only because I feel that the, the opposite, so the pull-based approach is a bit more popular, at least from what I have seen so far in Elixir, when it's helpful. And I would say that the biggest aspect of what you may think about is the rate of changes between those different pieces. So let's continue with the example with the like, calendar event and some notifications that uh, follow the events. If your business is dealing with events, you can be pretty confident that the data model used for that events and like different fields and different pieces of 
of logic associated with that events will change as you look for product market fit, as you try to uh, look for different new markets, new audiences, and so on. But the fact that you want to send notifications for events, it's something that, that is pretty stable. It's pretty common pattern. It's something that users are used to. So like the logic of sending, sending a notification can be considered pretty stable. So if you have those two pieces of code and one that is pretty stable and one that is likely to change a lot, and when it changes, it requires a lot of different pieces to be changed as well. Because like, if you are dealing with events, this is the core of your system. Changing events will probably bring a lot of different changes as well. So if you have a case like that, I like to isolate the pieces that change at different paces. So I try to isolate the code and the data responsible for sending the notifications from the rest. And then I have the freedom of changing how I represent events internally without having to worry about notifications, which is pretty important for me because I want, when I am working on a system, I want to be able to change the logic in the system without having to spend more time than necessary and without risking to break existing pieces of code. So that's why the push-based approach can be helpful because it can allow you to isolate those different pieces. It can allow you to extract one piece, design a read model for that piece, make that piece own its own data, and then basically forget about that as soon as the interface between the two pieces remain the same. And one thing you mentioned back at the beginning there was about this idea how Elixir, the poll-based approach, has gotten a lot of attention. When I think of that, I'm, I'm thinking of like GenStage or Broadway. Is that what you're thinking of as well? Not necessarily. And the reason I'm not talking about any specific solution like that is that I'm not really focused on like the operational aspect of of that division. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that it is it isn't important because it's sometimes it's crucial, but I just didn't want to tackle too much things at once. So I'm more concerned about the the logical coupling and like the rate of changes in the code base and in the data itself, not the the flow of data in the memory or in the processes. Yeah, because when I think of cases where poll-based works is, especially when, when I have like bursty traffic, like something like a whole flood comes in at once and then because of what other rate limiting or resources or whatever I have to like, I have a limited pool of workers that can actually pull off items. And so I I think that that model works, but that's not necessarily the model you're talking about. So I think that's helpful for kind of us when we're encountering these situations to recognize, oh, this is the kind of problem I have. I'm trying to deal with a Lady Gaga just tweeted something and I'm doing Twitter analysis, right? Like that kind of problem versus something where it's like more in my system where a, a calendar event has been created and it's a little bit, it's more controlled, right? People aren't creating like, oh, let's, let's create 10,000 calendar events all at once, right? So like, it's a different problem. 
Yeah, that's like coming back to what we talked about, understanding your different non-functional requirements and making sure that what you design matches those, those this context. That's why I, I always try to think about the business and I try to put a lot of emphasis on making sure that the developers understand what kind of problems we are facing. Because for some businesses, yeah, dealing with burst of data is like pretty important and it might be the, the thing that is either reason for success or a reason for failure. But for other businesses, like it's just not a big problem. Using the example from the beginning in the logistics company, it's just not possible. You cannot have 10,000 of trucks just making the, the same delivery at the same time. It's just not something that you have to deal with. So you make different trade-offs than with Twitter when you expect those things to happen. And actually those things make your system way more popular. So you have to make sure that you are ready to, to handle them as well as possible. So one of the other things you mentioned in this idea of being able to push events and things to these modules, these Elixir modules that are handling this logic, is the ability to adapt and be maintainable. So how do you feel like, and maybe, you know, that covers testing as well. Like maybe it's, which do you think is easier to test or, or just how is testing different at all? It's a pretty big topic, but I would start with maybe where the, the testing boundary lays. And I would say that if you extract a piece of code and uh, that code owns its own data and that piece of code is responsible only for sending a notification for an event or making sure that once all four documents are uploaded, something happens, you can test that at that boundary. So you have a pretty stable interface that the other modules use. So you can use the same interface for testing. And as long as the interface is safe to use and you don't make a mistake when using the interface, you can be sure that whatever your test check will work in the real life. With the pool-based approach, when you use like your main database table to query the data and do something with the data, your tests have to make sure that all the data is there, that the data is valid, and the data matches what you can expect in real life. So this can be a bit trickier or harder to, to actually maintain and a bit more annoying to, to write test for, for that kind of logic where the logic is coupled to, to different database tables and you have to make sure that the setup is correct. It gets tricky and it makes the refactoring of code much harder, which I, I don't feel it's a good thing because ultimately for me, refactoring and changing the code should be as easy and as safe as possible because it is something that we should expect to happen. When I hear you say that, what I'm seeing is like, it's brittle. Yeah. Because of that coupling to that data and the setup of the tests, refactoring it's easier to cause test failures, even though there might yeah. not be a problem with the code. It's more of the setup. Right. 
So in your article, you also kind of touched on some of these other things like job processors, like Oban or Rescue or those things. And would you consider those to be poll-based or push-based or kind of where do you think those fall in this? I would consider that to be push-based in a way that you send the data to a library. So you send the data to Oban, then Oban handles the data, it saves it. Like you don't have to worry about how the Oban knows when to do the job, how the Oban stores its data. Once you push the data to Oban, you don't have to care about the rest. So that's why I would consider like things like Oban to be more push-based. So then when the event is coming back outside of Oban to say, time to work on it, and it's being pushed to a worker, is that kind of how you're thinking about that too? Yeah, or Oban can be a worker if that's like, if that solution matches your requirements. Do you have some personal experience working with Oban? Is that a library you like and would recommend to someone? Yeah, Oban is a pretty good library. If you need to do something in the background and you want to do this reliably and you want to handle retries, and you probably do, Oban is a great library to do that. What I would pay attention to and maybe why I added that to my article is that I feel that it's really important to understand the library you are using. In Elixir, you have Oban, and if you are just looking for something to handle the, the background jobs, you might, uh, you might see Oban and think that it basically handles your use case. But then you might also see something like Commanded, that like it's a library for event-driven applications in Elixir. And it also, in a way, can allow you to handle things in the background. And the important thing is to understand how these things are different and how you should choose between them based on your requirements. And that's why in my article, I tried to show the reader the steps of migrating from one solution to another and then to Oban to make sure that the reader understand like the pattern used and then can spot the pattern that is repeated and replace that re repetition with a library that's designed just to handle that part of the code base, that part of the logic. And I feel that if you understand like how the library works, for me, it's really important to understand how the library works. And if you can at least understand what the library do in the, in the background, you can be sure that you chose the, the right tool for the job. So for me, understanding the steps required from, to migrate from one solution to the library, it can be really helpful. And if you think you can handle that yourself, you can be sure that you gain all the benefits of using the library without taking too many risks. I like that approach of just saying, I want to better understand this library and how it fits. So I'm going to try, even if like it's just an like, experimental branch, uh, where just I'm going to adapt my system to work with this library and see what does that do to my system? What problems or downstream effects would that create? Like, does that make me rethink how other things have to work? And just to kind of help understand that library and the approach that they're taking and the problems they're trying to solve are just might be a different approach than what's appropriate for your existing project or the problem you're trying to solve. So I, I like that approach though. That's an interesting strategy there. 
Right. And there's also the, the thing about dealing with failures and problems, because handling the, the happy path is pretty simple. And just following the, the readme or some guide will get you to handle the happy path correctly. But when you want your system to be reliable and to work well under different circumstances, which I feel that in these times it is pretty important and users expect that. If you want your system to be reliable, you have to understand what to do if things go wrong and when the things can go wrong. And if you understand that and making sure that you understand the library is a good way of of making sure that you understand when the problems arise and how, you can be prepared to dealing with them. Well, Mache, I appreciate you taking the time to come and talk with me. We don't have a whole lot of time left, but I did want to ask you about just kind of your feelings on this topic that seems to be recurring. We've talked with you before about decomposing models, which is you know about modularity. And we've talked about this topic, which is about bringing modularity to our background jobs or read models and things like that. I'm getting this sense that there's this pattern of modular design. So maybe you can kind of share a little bit more about your thoughts on kind of where you're coming from with that. For me, modular design is kind of an ultimate goal of designing software and for few reasons. And one of them is that our brains are not good with dealing with things that are too complicated. So we have only limited uh, place in our minds to to think about things. So if you can design software that is composed of small pieces that you can understand in isolation, you make it much easier for you and anyone on your team to deal with that, that system, to understand how it works, to change it safely, and to basically interact with the system. The other aspect is that Uh, And this is more general, like, systems theory uh, aspect, is that things that are complex and work tend to be comprised of small autonomous parts. And you can see that, for example, in teams, you don't want a, a whole company to be a giant mess of people doing everything at once. You want each person to be autonomous. You want each team to be autonomous. You want uh, people to be able to do their part of work without having too many dependencies. I feel that the same is true for software. If you can minimize the dependencies, if you can make each part of the system autonomous, you can basically maximize your chances of being able to create something that is complex enough to actually be helpful and very valuable, but simple enough for the people to work on that and to change that. Because the last thing you want when writing code is for your system to be a blocker for the business. I feel that the software should enable the business to be faster, more efficient, more elastic, to change easier instead of being the blocker that has to be that has to be the limiting part of the business. So if we can design our systems to be modular, uh, we can maximize our chances to make changes easier, which is one of the requirements of running a successful business, I guess. Yeah, I like that the whole focus on the business and 
ultimately that's the goal, right? Like the project isn't going to continue if the business doesn't succeed. If we care about the job and we care about the the project and what we're trying to accomplish, then yeah, we want our work to be part of the solution, part of the enabler that makes it so we can adapt and deal with new situations. So love those thoughts. But Mache, uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me and sharing this information. And for you, dear listener, check out his blog post. He has some nice diagrams and things to help kind of visualize this along with some code to give more concrete examples. But if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, where should they go to do that? I feel that the best place is Twitter. And you can post a link to my profile in the show notes. And if anybody wants to have a chat, I'm open to any discussion. So feel free to reach out and I'm glad to talk. Well, Mache, thank you again. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.